Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. In each episode, talking with thought leaders and executives, PurposeWorks founder Thomas Bertels explores what it takes to make work more productive, valuable, impactful, and meaningful. Let's begin the conversation. So welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Al Sini. Al has a very strong project management background. You, you worked on, on large-scale projects where you really had to align people towards a common objective. And since then, you uh, you have a couple of things uh, that you do, right? You're, you're a host of two uh, TV programs. You're a frequent speaker. And uh, you also have a company that has a really interesting uh, concept, the Brand and Culture Alignment Toolkit, which is the topic for our conversation today, right? How do you align an organization and people towards a common purpose and common objective. So, Al, welcome to the show. Thank you, Thomas. I appreciate the invitation. It's great to be here with you. The Brand and Culture Alignment Toolkit, what, what's the what's the fundamental idea behind that? It's a, a, a 15 years of experience working for General Electric as a contract project manager. My uh, GE business unit was NBC Universal, so I worked on a succession of fairly ambitious technical projects uh, over a period of about 16 or 17 years. And uh, anybody who's uh, anybody out there who's listening or watching and has never uh, and knows anything at all about GE knows that the GE does not stand for generous. So my number as a project manager every year would float up to the top of spreadsheet and various vice presidents would take a look at my number and say, well, he's expensive. We have to get rid of him. And there was always a vice president or two who would say, but, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can't really exactly explain what it is this guy does. And he certainly doesn't do it the way the other members of the project management office do it. But we can tell you that the projects he runs come in under budget and on time. And some of the things we've asked him to do are very mission critical for us here at uh, NBC. And uh, so go to the next line in the spreadsheet, leave them alone. And, and year after year, they pretty much did that. That really is the birth of the brand and culture alignment toolkit. It's something I learned about project management that is really counterintuitive. When you say the word team to somebody, you know, a commonly used word, obviously, but when you say the word team to somebody, names like uh, New York Yankees or uh, New York Giants come into people's heads. And you tend to think about teams that were organized decades or even centuries ago that have been in place for a very long time. There are no teams like that in any corporation that I've ever worked in, and I've worked in plenty. Teams come and go. They form, they, they, get, a, they get a purpose assigned to them, they execute on that purpose, hopefully. Often they don't at all. Uh, and then when it's over, it's over. And, and those people then move on to other teams. And it's not, there is no such thing as the New York Yankees of corporate America uh, because the teams are very fluid. And that's sort of the, nature, the natural state of it. So given that, as a project manager at, at uh, General Electric, I never had the luxury of being able to pick who was on my team. I never had the luxury of being able to say where my team was going to do its work. I never had any of those luxuries. I was always given a thing that needed to be done and a group of people to work with, with no control beyond any of that. And that was what was presented to me. So my challenge was, how do I get 
130, 140 people who are scattered all over the place and they all have jobs. They're all being paid. I can't fire them. I can't promote them. I can't even yell at them. How do I get 140 or 150 people all of a sudden on the same page about getting something done that they're technically not even paid to do? And they're doing it for me. And they have managers. <laughs> we didn't change any of that. They don't even report to me. I'm the project manager. So, and that was the ba- the the uh, really the the beginning of the uh, the brand and culture alignment toolkit. And for for people that are watching and listening, brand is simple. It's behavior. Brand is the collective behavior of a group of people when they're working together, serving a purpose. And I'm finally got around to the P word, which I know is an important word to you, Thomas. And I want to hear your thoughts on this too. When you get a group of people together that have a purpose, uh, that brand is the way they behave, and culture is what intrinsically motivates them to behave that way. What is it that they wake up feeling they want to do that day? I mean, what is it that they feel that they're looking forward to? And the Brand and Culture Alignment Toolkit, uh, Toolkit is about aligning the fundamental motivators that drive the kinds of behaviors that achieve the purpose of a team, whatever that might be. So I, I want to hear from you. I know purpose is a very important part of, uh, from your point of view, a very important part of any company's business model. Give, give me a second and let's see if we can't align ourselves on the whole definition of purpose. What would you say purpose was? I think for me, purpose is the reason why you do something, the underlying why, right? Simon Sinek would probably call it call it why. Um, I think it can be at the individual level, right? What's my purpose? For example, in my organization, right, my purpose is, uh, to help leaders uh, make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. Right? I'm trying to, to make, make work better. Organizations obviously have a purpose too, right? If you're like a pharma company, right, your purpose is to develop, you know, life-saving drugs. Right? Um, and in my view, I think it's one of these these things, right? We all talk about it, um, but I think there goes very little of, of substance that, that managers do that actually um, goes towards developing a stronger purpose for the organization. That's why I think your your framework I think is, is really interesting because you have this 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 uh, this very powerful question you ask right the incorporating question Al give us the incorporating question to talk about a setup thank you Thomas I appreciate that this is we're in the you and I uh, uh, really really quickly it's obvious I think one of the reasons why we connected as purposefully as we did is because you and I are actually climbing the same mountain, but along different faces in a way. So the journey to the top of the mountain may look different to you than it, than it does to me. But when we get to the top, we're at the top of the same mountain. And the top of the mountain for me, the top of the mountain for both of us is a company, group, team, group of people that are firing on all cylinders, accomplishing the mission. I, I almost hate to use that word because it's so misunderstood. There's a feeling about doing the right thing that is very intrinsically motivational. That feeling that today I am doing something good. Today I am making a difference. That making work meaningful and purposeful. You know, your, you know, your mission, which is wonderful. I think that when you ignite somebody around that, when you, when you set fire to somebody like that, they become unstoppable. And so my job really was to make sure that we had a repeatable process around that. I mean, it turned out that I was an unconscious competent. I was pretty good at relating to people well enough to make them feel comfortable enough with me so that eventually they would want to make me happy. That was what made me what made things work as a project manager. So 
it would get to a point pretty quickly in the projects I ran where people, enough people, not everybody, but enough people on the team would say, I'm doing this for Al today. Never out loud. And then at the end of the day, they'd call me up and they'd say, look what I did today. And I would look at what they did. And it was an amazing thing. Always an amazing thing. Often completely not on the project plan, which for me anyway, was the miracle of project management. It was never that you did what my Gantt chart said you were supposed to do today. It was that you got something done that needed to be done that I never even put on the Gantt chart because I had no idea that this particular thing needed to be done. And the way you did it was marvelous. So that whole idea that when you get a group of people together who are wrapped around the eye, that, that feeling of doing the right thing, that all of a sudden wonderful, positive things happen that maybe even the project manager doesn't expect. That was the miracle of project management for me. And that was what worked so well. So the Brandon Culture Alignment Toolkit was about me taking this unconscious, competent journey that I recall pretty vividly and trying to make it repeatable. How can you teach this to somebody? How can you apply this process over and over again so that any team of any kind or any size, regardless of what it is they do, it could be engineering, it could be pol a police department, it could be a middle school. We, we've done them all now. Uh, so that any team of any size or any kind could use it to ignite their workforce, to ignite the people around the idea of purpose. And it starts with this question, which is a hard question, not really all that hard if you think about it, but it's a question people have never heard before. So you take a group of people that have something in common. That's the team, loosely speaking, right? It could be, like I said, a middle school. It could be a, a, a police department. It could be an engineering team or a quality control team. And you get everybody together in a, in a room virtually, actually not physically anymore. This, all this could be, it could be done virtually. And you start with an invitation. The invitation is to complete an exercise. And the exercise is a thought exercise. The incorporating question is simply, imagine my whole team. Imagine your whole team. Everybody on your team. So we're a single person doing its best work on its best day to keep all its promises and achieve all its goals. What would that person be like? What we do is we start with this. Think of the entire GE project team for digitizing this television station as though it were a single person doing its best work on its best day to keep all its promises and achieve all its goals. What would that person be like? Now, instead of asking people to think about who they are, like, who are you, Thomas, or who, are, who am I, Al? I'm now asking people to think about who we are collectively, which is not a comfortable exercise. Usually that emerges over time, but I don't have the luxury of time. I need to get this project done in three months. I need that question answered today. I can't afford for that question to unfold if it does at all. In our research, as soon as the answer that to that question becomes apparent, people start working together very effectively. But only in about a third of the cases does it ever get answered, if that. And as a result of that, two-thirds of projects fail. Two-thirds of corporate initiatives completely fall on their butts and, and, and flop around. Uh, Two-thirds of the money you spend on getting things done gets wasted, doesn't get applied actually to what needs to be done, all because we're waiting organically for something that we could make happen much more quickly if we just knew how. That's the whole point of it. So today, we are going to address the question, who are we? We're not going to wait for three months or five months or eight months, two months after the project's over, by the way, to find out the answer to that question. We're going to find that out today. 
And the, the way we find that out, by the way, is by asking that question and then sending people a URL to go to and giving everybody on the team the opportunity to answer that question by completing an online survey. We call that uh, the BCAT survey instrument. So it takes about 15 minutes to complete. What we get back from that is a description from each participant on the team of this ideal person. Who do we believe we are when we're doing our best work on our best day? And what we found in our data over and over again is that the closer those answers are together, the stronger there is a sense of who we are, the closer everybody is to operating with purpose, the more likely they are to be motivated by that purpose and therefore more likely to be successful as a member of that team, period. So it's an indicator. It basically tells you how, how aligned this team, organization, right, department, whatever it is, uh, is. Now, let's say that they're not very aligned. You get vastly different answers there. So, so what do you do then? Well, that's the fun part. And I'm so glad you asked that question because I, I love answering that question. The, the, the result we get back is something we call an index of alignment, which is essentially a meter, if you can imagine a dashboard on the wall, uh, that tells a, a boss how aligned their people are with each other. This meter, when it's all the way on the left in the red zone, is that not only are they not aligned, they're actually misaligned. They actually see completely different people when they answer that question. Uh, and that means that there's a lot of occult conflict and a lot of argument and a lot of jockeying for position uh, and relatively little progress. So you get a needle that falls all the way on the left. That's the red zone. We can measure that. On the other hand, in the green zone, which is a needle that's kind of all the way over on the right, and that, that's the index of alignment, you've got a group of people that really see almost exactly the same person. They have a very clear visualization of who we are. Now, your question is, what about all the people that land in the middle, which is 99% of the time? Usually what you get is a kind of an apathetic response where some people describe it one way, other people describe it another way. In other words, what you get is a cl fuzzy cloud of answers back from everybody. Well, the miracle of it is once they ask that question, the process has begun. They're now thinking about who are we when we're doing our best work on our best day. What we got back from the survey is that there is no real consensus on that. There's no real clear agreement on that. There's a lot of difference of opinion about that. Now the job becomes, how do we close that gap? How do we move that needle to the right? The cool thing is the, the act of asking the question is actually the first step in the process. And we found that when you ask that question repeatedly, the number starts to creep upward, it starts to creep northward. But the more people think about it, the more they tend to converge on a solution. Now, here's the magic of it, Thomas, because in the final analysis, if it's only for the people that run the company and all this happens only in the conference room, well, none of those people are ever going to do you any damn good at all because none of them knows how to write code. None of them knows how to lift something up and carry it and put it someplace else and plug it in. None of them knows how to rack a server. None of them knows how to do anything. So aligning just the executive level is never good enough. And yet, nine times out of 10, when you hire that office space consultant, yeah, right. We talked about that before the program. When you hire that office space consultant, Nine, nine times out of 10, all that work, all the conversation is about just the bosses because the bosses pay the consultant, which is really all they're good for. I mean, I hate to say that. It's terrible to say that. If what you're doing with a team does not reach all the way down to the people that mop the floors and answer the phones, then you might as well not even begin the process. You are wasting your time because the people that mop the floors and answer the phones are smart people. 
They're very smart people and they see you meeting in the conference room and they hear that you're talking about things like what's the purpose of the company and they know you're meeting with consultants. And when none of that ever gets down to them, it becomes obvious to everybody in the company that you're wasting your time and wasting your money and you really don't care about the result. You're just trying to look good. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, no, I think I think it's really fascinating because the other thing that I see all the time is that, right, exactly that happens, right? You got right, 15 people in a conference room, but they put all these nice words on the paper, right, that have nothing to do with the lived reality in the organization. And then they spend oodles of money to casket that down and, and put that on nice posters as if you could kind of like will it into existence. That's really where all the power of this is. So, so, you, so you've got these people and they've answered this question, the incorporating question, and they've gotten all kinds of different answers back. And you share the answers with everybody. Now, as we see that cloud come back and we see that everybody has a different point of view on this, what we're learning is that there is no clear role model that represents who we are, what excites us when we wake up in the morning. And that, for me anyway, is the real trick to the reveal process of BCAT. We've learned over time that when you get a really successful team, a team that's really operating successfully, there's a role model in the middle of that team that represents that team's best work on its best day. And it's not anybody on the team. It's not the owner of the company. It's not any one particular person. It is essentially, what would Jesus do? Which is a question we ask all the time, except it's not Jesus. It's who are we? What would we do under these circumstances? If this kind of a call came in, if this kind of a situation arose, what would we do? What is the right thing to do? And that emerges very openly with everybody participating if you just give them the time. And so, so the trick for us anyway is to take the numbers that come back from the incorporating question and score them on four axes. What we found is that there are four role models. There are really only four role models that drive any team. Teams that are engineering-oriented teams kind of follow a blue role model. You ever hear the expression, boy, those people drank the Kool-Aid? When you see a group of people that are really clicking and you're really amazed and impressed and these guys really know their stuff, you, you think, boy, those people really drank the Kool-Aid or they're all singing from the same sheet of music or they're all rowing in the same direction. We say these things about groups that we really respect. Well, I'm here to tell you what the four flavors of Kool-Aid are. When you drink the blue Kool-Aid, you slow down you become more methodical. You concentrate on measuring twice, cutting once, and avoiding making mistakes. You become averse to taking risks because risk is dangerous. You'd rather spend a lot of time getting a really clear answer to something and then acting on that answer than just impulsively coming up with an answer and acting on it immediately. Engineering, quality control. That's the blue Kool-Aid. And now here's the red Kool-Aid. When you drink the red Kool-Aid, you become impatient, you become edgy. You, you want to take the guy who drank the blue Kool-Aid and drag the conclusions out of them. You want to try to get them to just take this long, complicated story they've come up with and net it out to five bullet points. All I need are five bullet points. The red Kool-Aid makes me want to focus on a result, often by trivializing things or sim oversimplifying things, which is kind of a risk you run. But the point is, I want to take what you're telling me and turn it into an action plan. I need to have something I can see by five o'clock today. That's the red Kool-Aid. If I drink the yellow Kool-Aid, I'll take a lampshade off of a lamp in the room and I'll put it on my head and dance around. The yellow Kool-Aid makes me random, unpredictable, uh, surprising, fun, spontaneous. 
uh, creative, highly creative. That's the yellow Kool-Aid. And if I drink the green Kool-Aid, I take out a clipboard that has a list of things to do, and I work that list methodically from top to bottom, checking off the items as I go along and making sure I don't miss any of them. Okay? So engineering firms tend to drink a lot of blue Kool-Aid. Management consulting firms like Accenture tend to drink a lot of red Kool-Aid. Um, creative agencies, advertising agencies tend to drink a lot of yellow Kool-Aid. And um, hospitals, uh, they tend to drink a lot of green Kool-Aid, taking care of people, making them feel well served. Only four. That's it. So in your water cooler, there is a mix of four flavors, a uh, little bit more of one, a little bit less of another, that represent your culture. And when you drink it, you're motivated. You're turned into that uh, Alice in Wonderland when you take the blue pill. When you When you drink it, you become the person who manifests it in your behavior, and that's your brand. So I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. But I guess in in your, as you do the survey with a group of people, people people have different roles on the team, right? So if I'm on a, right, you talked about digitizing uh, the station, right? You probably need a little bit of everything, right? You need people who are methodical, you need people who are creative, right? So, so, so you run the survey, you have these different flavors. So how do you bring that together into it's like one consistent picture. How is it that smart people make stupid decisions? And a lot of it is because they don't, they lose sight of the role model that represents the good pilot or the good police officer or the good nuclear engineer. That role model, what would Jesus do, is something they wander away from because they're ordered to or because they're encouraged to or because they're even incentivized to do that. And as a result of that, what you get is some horrible outcomes. You get some terrible, terrible outcomes because they become possible. So in my opinion, and based on my experience, a team should be governed not by the people that govern the team, but by the role model that represents that team's best self on its best day. And I'll, I'll give you an example from police departments. We've done a bunch working with police departments. If you think about a police department, a team, a group of people that are when you, when you ask them the incorporating question, when you ask a group of police, a policemen, police persons, to answer the question, who are we when we're doing our best work on our best day? You tend to get a lot of answers around the gun and the badge, which means you get a really, really bright red response back. We enforce the law. We, I mean, you get a lot of red back from that because that's natural. They're trained that way in the police academy, that they're indoctrinated that way based on pop culture and everything they see on television. When you ask them that question, you tend to get a lot of red back. But when you look at all that red, cloudy, not clear, you look at all that red and you put everybody down in the room and you ask them, is this really who we are when we're doing our best day, our best work on our best day? Even the stubbornest, most hard-headed police person, the, most, the person most committed to that, We'll tell you we need to be more green. There's too much red in this department. We're too focused on enforcing the law and not focused enough on supporting and um, serving the community. We need to be more community oriented. Now, now that you've got that process started, you start asking them questions like, okay, I'm now getting a picture of Jesus. What would Jesus do? So now we can start answering the question in this way. What would Jesus do? If they pulled somebody over for a red light, how would they respond? If they, And now you've got people in the organization saying, I wouldn't do this. I'd do this instead. 
And when you add all that up, what you get is a really great mix of red, but mostly governed by green. So red goes down. There's a little, the, the, the content of red in the water cooler tends to go way down. The content of green, which may not have been there in the beginning, tends to come way up. And you end up with an organization that is more focused on its actual purpose than just on the tools that it uses to achieve it. And that getting people to stop thinking that just because they have a hammer doesn't mean they live in a universe full of nails is really the ultimate goal of the brand and culture alignment toolkit. Don't do the obvious thing. Don't take out your hammer and look for something to flatten. You know, just because you have a hammer doesn't mean you have to look for every chance you get to use it. Today, you're going to do the right thing. And whether you mop the floors and answer the phones or own the company, we all follow the same North Star, this role target, role model that represents all of us. That It's a marvelous process that really does change the way people think about what they do. And, and all you do really is a, as a person who delivers it is you facilitate it. I never tell people what color they are. They tell me. All they need to do is learn what those colors mean. And once they do, that's them. It's great. Do you ever run into situations where, you know, you, you, you do the you do the toolkit, you have large variation in terms of how people respond. You, you can't get people to align towards like a common a common image. You know, it would be it would be embarrassing for me to say the truth here. Uh, because the truth is never. The truth is never. Now, every now and then we'll get a participant who is so negative on the whole idea of working with a consultant at all that they start out being passive aggressive and they stay that way throughout the whole process. I mean, we do find people that are just obstreperous, difficult. We do run into them. We have a pretty good track record over time of, of encouraging those people to stop being that way. Once they figure out that there's a book called The Fifth Discipline that was written by a, a guy at MIT, Peter Senge, and he has a quote in that book, a bunch of, that's actually a really good book. Um, But one of his quotes is that people don't resist change. What they resist is being changed. So when you when you are dictating a change to a group of people, when you're telling people there's too much red in your water cooler, you need to cut down on the red, they're going to fight that tooth and nail because they, they want to tell you that they found that. They don't want you to tell them that you found that. They want to be the architects of that change. They want to, they want to be the ones that see that and that drive that. And what we found in our experience is when you give the people uh, that you're working with an opportunity to really drive that, and when you avoid at all costs ever discussing the actual work until the very end, because the work is the third rail of organizational development. Once I get into what you do for a living, I've triggered all your defense mechanisms. It, it has to be from beginning to end all about learning and discovery. That's the nature of it. When you give people that opportunity, amazingly, they align with each other. Often, people who hate each other begin to understand that they don't need to anymore, and they align with each other in ways you would never expect, just because they were given the chance to do it and not told to. With all these processes, right, if you want to build, uh, I think, commitment in an organization, to your point, you can't dictate it, right? Even if you know the answer, right? Even if you know right, what, what, what the right answer is, um, I, I think there's a really interesting uh, process there that, you know, kind of like people really just want to do what, right, what, what came out of themselves, right? They want to implement their own ideas. And if you allow them to do it, you get much better results than if you're trying to dictate it the other way around. Always. See, uh, let me let me explore that because, I, I, you know, the, the, the real challenge of free will is, uh, I mean, everybody, 
the real problem with free will is that everybody has it. I mean, it would be great if just you had it, Thomas, or just I had it, free will. You know, we know what to do with it. Our problem is there are other people in the world who have it, but don't know what to do with it. And that always frustrates us. You follow me? Now, what I just said was the typical bias of the average manager. The average manager, frustration of the average manager is I've got all these people and every one of these people has free will. So they try to manage them the way they would manage. And I, I like to use this as an example. I have an iPhone. Um, it's a good phone. And it's a thing. It's an object. It does not have free will. Now, here's how I manage it. It has, I bought it because it has this ability to do certain things. And I bought the abilities that it offers. I brought the promise it makes. More to your, getting back to your original point. This device makes a promise. It promises, you know, when it, when it works to make telephone calls for me, which is just about the only thing it doesn't reliably do. So, so I've got this phone. Now, the phone has two probabilities. It has a probability that it'll deliver on its promise. It'll give me what I paid for. That's one probability. And the other probability is it'll let me down. It'll disappoint me. So, and adding, it, adding those two probabilities up gives me one. This phone is going to do something. It's going to do something. I know it's going to push the button. It's going to come on. It's going to do something. 99 times out of 100, it's going to do what I paid for. But one in 100 times, it's going to do something I don't want it to do because it'll, dis it'll let me down. It'll disappoint me. So I'll try to manage it by going to a certain place where I know I get a good sell signal. Or I'll try to lower that second probability by managing this device. Often I'll yell at the device. I might even throw the device. I mean, people, you get... That's typical management bias. This thing does not have, it's amazing, but it doesn't have free will. People have two probabilities. There's the probability that they'll disappoint you, like the iPhone will let you down every now and then. But there's also this probability that they'll amaze you and do wonderful things that you never expected anybody to do, let alone them. And in a lot of cases, it's sort of like, Thomas, you... I would never have expected you to do this, Thomas. You, you know what I mean? As soon as you start managing people the way you manage things, you destroy not only that first probability that they'll disappoint you, but also that second probability that they'll amaze you. You've, what you've really done now is killed the possibility that they'll impress you in a way that you wouldn't expect. And I'll give you an example. Remember I said it only works if it goes all the way down to the people that mop the floors and answer the phones? Well, managing one of the projects I did for GE, it turned out we needed a rack installed. Now, the original plan didn't call for that rack. There was no need for that rack. But during the course of the project, we identified a few things we could buy that would make a better end state, but we didn't have any place to put them because they weren't on the original plan. So now I go back to the budget and we're, you know, racks are all bought up. And, uh, you know, but I call and I say, okay, how much for it? We need two more. How much for two more? And they give me a price. But the order deadline is like 18 months. We can't get it for eight. And there's only one approved vendor. That was my life for many years. But, you know, but I'm not telling you anything you haven't already experienced yourself. So so I verbalized that. I said, ah, except, you know, for want of a horse, this battle will be lost. I mean, that was it. I mean, what was that? It makes me Richard III. So, so uh, now I don't have these two racks that I need. The next day I came in and there were two racks sitting there. I didn't order them. I didn't get them. I, I was at my wit's end. I couldn't figure out. I was pretty frustrated. It turned out that the guy who mops the floors, literally the janitor of this TV station, heard me say that. 
he was in the project meeting just like everybody else. And he said, I know where there's two racks. They've just been sitting there and nobody's doing anything with them. So that night he just stole these two racks from a different part of the company, brought them over and built them up. Thomas, that's why they kept me around. I mean, if I would have, if I had tried to force that, that miracle never would have happened. It only happened because it was allowed to happen. And because everybody felt bad that we weren't going to be able to do what we needed to do. And, and it turned out that this, this guy, floor mopper, I mean, I, I, that was one of the happiest moments of my entire time doing what I did for GE because he made possible something that all the smart guys couldn't figure out how to do. They just couldn't figure it out. And he, he did all that. And I, you know, see, to me, that's the miracle of working with people is that if you allow that second probability to bubble up and have a certain amount of faith, and it requires that, you know, it's, it's trying to make it happen actually defeats the purpose of that. You know, and that is the give people a chance and they'll amaze you. I think we all want agency, we want free will. We want to do what we want to do, not what somebody else wants us to do. And if you can tap into that and give people an opportunity to bring their ideas to the table, right? I, I think I think that's one of the that in my in my view is is one of really the secrets of uh, you know enabling real transformation, right? To get give everybody a seat at the table, right? Put all the ideas out there. Um, and and you'll always I'm always surprised by you know, to your point right it's the janitors it's like the people it's the people closest to the work in a way right that that end up having the best ideas. They're the ones that are there, yeah. They're the ones that are in the trench, actually fighting the battle. And and then your job as a project manager isn't to shame and blame people, which is what most project managers think is their job. Uh, your job is to have the hero pizza party on Friday where we identify Bob as the guy who solved a big problem for us this week. And I just want to call out, you're all great. And I love working with all of you, but Bob really stepped up this week and made this difference. And I want everybody to know. And the pizza this week is on Bob. I'm paying for it, but it's, this is Bob's pizza this week. And that is to me, anyway, that becomes the joy of human effort. No, we're not robots. We are not robots. And that whole idea of artificial intelligence, I think we feel we need it because we're giving up on natural intelligence. We're giving up on, I think, but I think we're giving up too soon. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, uh, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, obviously the, the, for some certain things, you know, AI is great, right? Can probably see things that the human eye can't see and so forth, right? But I think delegating decision-making um, uh, to those machines, I think is going to be a really bad idea, um, especially since, you know, Nobody really knows what these algorithms actually do, right? And then you can't interrogate them. Um, so, so Al, if I'm now, I'm a, I'm a let's say I'm a leader of an organization, right? And, and you know maybe things are not going so well, right? It's like uh, there's a lot of different flavors of Kool Aid around, and you know you have a lot of conflict. So, so, so I, I guess that is is that one of these situations where one should think about BCAT. When when does this model add the most value? We're, 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 getting, we're getting traction from uh, people who have a whole variety of problems. Uh, and Initially, obviously, I mean, that whole idea of, is BCAT a vitamin or is it a, is it a painkiller? You know, that whole idea. It's, it's actually kind of both. So now and then we'll get um, a call from a group or an organization that feels as though maybe they need to do a reset. 
a project manager that feels like they need to reboot a project team to get them reoriented around what needs to be done because he, the, he or she feels like they've lost their way. We'll, we'll come in on that. But mostly we come in because people really do want an exercise that actually builds a team around the purpose that they serve, not just um, not just paintball or bowling or, you know, a lot of the events, that, which are great, by the way. I would never tell people not to do that. But what you really want is an experience where people participate together and really identifying and understanding what their purpose is so that on Monday when they come into work, things are different than they were on Friday. It's not just we did this fun thing on Friday. I can't wait till we do something like that again. But on Monday, it's and, and, and what, what gratifies me more than anything is hearing in an organization that we work with is that we're still talking about how much blue we need to use or how much red we need to. Or maybe that's too much red. Maybe we need to dial that back. When you make people mindful of these four knobs in their heads, blue, red, yellow, green, and you show them where the set tool is. And you get them in there and tell them how they can fiddle with the factory settings and become less anger-driven and more collaborative, depending on the circumstance they're in. Uh, people actually enjoy making those changes and then bragging, talking about how they did and what kind of an outcome they got from that. So project managers that want to reboot a project team, they'll call us. Uh, managers of departments that want to want to recognize the department as being excellent and want to help them find a higher level of excellence, they'll call us. Uh, we get calls every now and then from um, HR people. Uh, HR, HR is kind of a funny case. HR has always wanted a place at the table, and they talk about how we really want a place at the table. Our statistics tell us that when people do BCAT, when they do follow the process we've created, they become their engagement level in the work they do shifts from about 32% to about 67%. All the numbers that an organization depends on go up as a result of that. I can't think of a better way to earn a place at the table than by going to the CEO and saying, I've discovered a method that can help us increase the level of engagement among our people in a way that will drive the numbers we need to drive. Give me some budget. Give me some time. This is how it's going to work. Let me get started. Obviously, this is just a starting point. This process requires a follow through. So I would imagine that this starts to fall apart if the leaders don't behave in line with that persona that the organization just aligned on, right? As soon as, as, soon as I see them doing, do as I say, don't, not as I do, uh, you know, that, that, that really does, that's toxic, no question. Most leaders, I think, understand that. And, and you know, you're actually raising a really good point. If the leaders feel as though BCAT is something you do to people, in other words, my people are the wrong color, I need them painted a new color, come in and paint them. You know, if that's how they see it, that'll never work. They need to strip down naked and stand there and be painted just like everybody else. If they don't participate, if they're not on the same footing in this process as the people who mop the floors and answer the phones, everybody's going to know it and nobody's going to respond favorably to that. I like that because it's like a non-hierarchical process in that sense, right? It has to be totally flat. I mean, there can't be any, you have no privilege by virtue of the fact that you started it. You have no privilege by virtue of the fact that you own it or that you're the largest shareholder. None of that matters. I mean, all of that is irrelevant to this process. And you need to participate in it the way everybody else does. And when we've done this, we've done a bunch of them. Often, the CEO will look at where everybody else landed and say, I need to move. I'm wrong. I mean, this is, my people are right. And often, <laughs> we've seen it just as often, maybe a little more often, the people who work in the company will realize they've slipped into a silo. 
And what they're doing is what's comfortable for them and not what really needs to be done. And they'll move toward the CEO of their own free will, voluntarily, because they believe that'll make them a better version of themselves as a member of this team. Rarely, somebody will say, I don't think I'm a good member. I don't think this team has a purpose that I can get behind. I don't feel like I'm a good fit. Rarely that'll, I mean, most, see, we, I, I've never been a fan of um, find a hole and fill it with somebody who's the right shape. I've always been a fan of, this is what we need to do. Is this a dream that you can have with us? Uh, my, for me, anyway, recruiting is about tapping into the dreams and hopes and aspirations of people to get them to want to be a better version of themselves, to inspire them to become that. I, I tell everybody all the time, we, our tagline is align and inspire. It is not assign and require. In the recruiting process, if you're tapping into what people really want for themselves, that's much more powerful than if you're just following the check boxes on their resume to see if they've got the skill set you need. People can learn anything if they want to. They really can if they want to. But if, if they don't want to, it doesn't matter what they know. They're not going to use it. If people want to learn more about BCAT, where should they go? What do they have to put into their browser? Good question. G-E-T-B-C-A-T, getbcat.com. That's our website. There are contact references there. You can send us an email that way. I, I can be reached at al.cini, A-L.C-I-N-I, at getbcat.com. Wonderful. Al, thank you so much for sharing your insights on alignment and purpose. And uh, to our listeners, you know, don't forget to check out the other episodes of the Work Matters podcast. Uh, and, and of course, remember to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, be sure to subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter. Mm -hmm.